Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the JavaScript Jabber podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about testing JavaScript with Joe Eames. Um, Joe, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself really fast, and then we'll do the rest of the introductions and start talking? Sure. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, my name is Joe Eames, and I've been a web developer for a very long time, and I'm the creator of testdrivenjs.com. It's kind of my uh, own personal quest to bring uh, better unit testing and uh, test-driven development to the JavaScript world. That's pretty much me. All right. Thanks, Joe. I've actually had lunch with Joe a few times. I organized the lunches for the JavaScript uh, group here. And, uh, yeah, so I'd organize them up in Murray, and uh, which is a suburb of Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake City. And, uh, yeah, Joe and I have had one-on-one lunches twice now, I think. Yep. Yeah, so uh, I might just start scheduling lunch with Joe and then stop scheduling JavaScript lunches up <laughs> in Salt Lake County. But, They're probably uh, really romantic, though. Yeah, yeah. We should have lit a candle at the last one. We should have. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we also have Jameson Dance on the podcast. Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. I'm a web developer, JavaScript developer in Utah. All right. I'm, I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. I guess we're all from Utah this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, so really interesting um, for me anyway is that I, I used to complain a lot that I would write JavaScript and then I couldn't test it because I'm pretty accustomed to testing my Ruby code. Um, and so Joe did a, a presentation at the, was it the last meeting that we were at or the meeting before that? The last one. The last one. Yeah, about uh, doing TDD with JavaScript. And I'm sitting there going, ooh, this is speaking right to me. And so um, I, I'm a little curious, Joe, what your take is as far as how TDD works with JavaScript versus maybe doing TDD with other languages or frameworks. Well, um, it's pretty interesting, uh, the difference in opinions and views. It seems like there's a very large amount of people that are realizing, oh, we do need to unit test JavaScript, but very few people are saying we need to test drive our JavaScript the way that uh, many people are saying we need to test drive our middle tier code. So I think the biggest difference by far is in the community. Having done a fair amount of uh, test-driven JavaScript, uh, I would say that there's some differences for sure. Some of the tooling is lacking still, especially from the standpoint of being, from the perspective of doing test-driven JavaScript, the, the tooling is lacking. But um, in the end, there really isn't any difference. In fact, JavaScript has one big, huge benefit when test-driving code that just about no other platform that I'm aware of, no other um, language or architecture that I'm aware of has, and that is that you can test drive uh, the DOM. And in other other languages, you know, you can't test drive the Windows uh, presentation layer that you're writing or the um, the web page in a JSP or in Ruby, you can't. In Rails, you can't test drive that. Right. I mean, the best you can do, from what I can tell, is you... Because there are tools that allow you to test and see if certain things are on the DOM, but usually what they're doing is they're parsing it, and then you can search it via XPath or some other selector. Right. But, but that's about it. That's that's all you get. So if... And the other thing is, is it's all static. There's no JavaScript engine behind it. So basically, um, if you wanted to test drive your particular um, DOM manipulation, you have no recourse other than using a browser. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, of course, people are testing the browser with uh, tools like Selenium and doing automated testing, but those things aren't actual you know, unit tests. Uh, mostly they require a lot of visual inspection, uh, manual inspection for them to be um, effective. And then the Selenium, of course, gives you the ability to at least know if things are working or not. But it's not the same thing as actually test driving it with unit, code, with unit tests and 
Of course, selenium tests historically have been extremely brittle and uh, very difficult to write, very difficult to maintain. So having a large suite uh, of selenium tests, of UI-level tests, is just not feasible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty hard to get good coverage of just selenium tests. We've done some of that at work. and I mean, we, we use them for some things, but it, it's a lot easier to test at the code level than at just the user interaction level. Right. Right. Well, Was it also traditionally tied to just one browser, just to the Firefox browser? Nope. You can run it on IE and Chrome. Um, selenium WebDriver works with uh, Chrome. If you install, there's like a Chrome WebDriver plugin or something that you install, and then it, it can run on that. Well, and I tend to think of those as more um, full stack or integration tests as opposed right. to unit tests because exactly. effectively what you have to do is you have to run your app and then on the other end um, something is interacting with with Selenium or with the browser that Selenium is driving to, uh, to make it happen. And so um, if there's a problem in your stack, you don't necessarily know that the problem is in your JavaScript. And, and that's, that's the bonus with unit tests is that you, you're able to isolate things and figure out where the problem is. Right. Yeah, people, not, not everybody in, out there understands that not all kinds of automated testing are created equal. Right. So, so why don't we talk a little bit about the different types of testing really quickly, like unit test, integration test, uh, UI tests, you know, what, whatever you want to call them. Um, I've also heard of uh, functional tests, which in Rails they call them functional tests, but they're really just unit tests on your controllers. Um, but but what are the different types in in that you guys have seen and you know how do you define them what's what what are the pluses and minuses of using those? Well, uh, the two clear clear uh, definitions are unit tests and UI tests. Everybody knows what a unit test is, and what a UI what a UI test is. Uh, of course, there should be a little bit of discussion about a good unit test. It doesn't involve more than just a single component in code and doesn't really talk to the outside world, doesn't talk across the network to, or to the disk or to the database. Those are unit tests and UI tests are testing the entire application and just automating the UI. It's that middle level of tests like what you're talking about, uh, Ruby's uh, func functional tests, that there's a few names for them. A lot of people call them functional tests, some people call them integration tests. And uh, those are the ones that test just right below the UI level going down. Right. So I always I thought that Selenium tests would count as integration tests because you're testing the whole stack, right? In order to test your, if you're not just running the UI on some kind of like dummy layer, then when when you're testing stuff with that, you're, you're testing your UI, but you're also testing all the backend stuff behind it. So are those not integration tests? Well, it really just again those definitions are a little less clear across the community. So it does depend on who you're talking to. If you're um, talking to people that uh, have a really, really, really strict set of definitions, probably they'll say that integration tests are don't involve the UI. But there, are, but there are lots of people who uh, assume that an integration test does mean the UI. Hmm. It's not. Right. It's the, the sad point is, it's just not clear. You know, there's a lack of good definition out there. Yeah, right. I think that comes back to the community problem you said earlier that JavaScript as a community doesn't have a huge uh, tradition of testing. Right. So, so I want to talk a little bit here about uh, like the different the different levels of testing. Then, you know, the UI test, the integration test, and the unit test. Um, just to kind of. Uh, outline some of the benefits, I mean, why you would want to do any or all of them. Um, for me, really unit testing, you know, it's it's kind of the way of pinpointing where your problems are. Um, usually they, they only test one tier and yeah, you isolate them like Joe said. Um, with the integration tests or functional tests, those are nice because um, effectively you can get behavior, you're, you're getting out to the behavior level. But the nice thing with those is that 
um, your UI is, the, in my experience, the part that's most prone to change. And so this is getting everything below there without having the, the brittle um, nature of, of the DOM or whatever as you change what's there. And so this is your APIs, uh, that your JavaScript's hitting, things like that. And you can make sure that the behavior, you know, on the back end is what you expect. And then the UI tests um, kind of give you the full stack so that you can see that the entire the entire app behaves as you would expect under certain circumstances with certain inputs. D did I sum that up more or I, less accurately? Or I think so. I think it, that was a really good definition. I think that there are different approaches that have, like, different uh, types of validity to them. Uh, like, for some like, uh, behavior-driven uh, driven development, or, or, or testing can help you actually design your program. If you're, if you're starting from the point of view of, okay, I, I want a program that does this, that, that allows the user to do these things, then I can test, make write my test right now, okay, the user should be able to do these things rather than, you know, my component can add two numbers together or can take something out of the database in a certain way. So I think the abstraction level that you get from being able to zoom out so far that all the problems look small is is pretty valuable when you're starting out on a program. Yeah, that's very true for sure. Yeah. There's when you look at the different kinds of tests and the kinds of value that they bring and then the uh, drawbacks that they have, it's really funny because what seems like is the most valuable is the tests that test everything from basically UI level tests and you'd think just looking at it from uh, just getting introduced to the subject that, hey, UI level tests should be the only kinds of tests we need to write because that actually tests that everything is working. But when you realize that they're brittle, they're slow, the UI changes, all those sorts of things, then are, UI tests are no longer that valuable. Then you look down in the uh, functional integration uh, middle level of tests that test at least from a certain point on down. Uh, the value there is, again, very high. But the number of tests that you actually have to write um, from that huge. level, yeah, huge. Well, huge. that's because you have dozens of code paths that it can take. And right. you have to Everyone's... account for each one. And so you effectively do a mathematic permutation on that, and, or, or a, com a combination anyway. And yeah, so I mean, if there are a dozen different code paths that it can take, I mean, you're, you're going to have to write at least, probably at least, you know, 60, 70 tests to get each code, each uh, branch. If there are a dozen branches, you know, you're going to write tons and tons of tests to get that covered. Exactly. And then you look and down the worst at thing the... Is, Go ahead. Yeah. And the worst thing is that then you've written all those tests and it, it looks like it should be working, but then something changes in the middle and then all of a sudden your UI is still broken. Right. Yeah. And, and that's where the unit tests and the, the integration or functional tests come in. Right. Mm. So then if you look down at the, UI, the unit level tests, those are by far the most feasible ones to write. Um, but it is true that they're, they're only as good as their authoring and it's, it's a little bit like uh, engineering, right, mechanical engineering. You can make this mathematical model of whether or not a bridge will hold a certain amount of weight, but until you actually build the bridge and start putting load on it, you really don't know. The math is only a predictor. It's not a realistic knowledge that for sure things will work. And unit tests are the same way. I, I view them, they're like the mathematical predictor of will it work, but you don't know that, it, that you glued the pieces together correctly because unit tests, they isolate the pieces. So you don't know that the, the pieces work together correctly until you actually get the application running. So it's, it's an important thing to realize is that unit tests are not a silver bullet. They don't guarantee that your application is correct. Yeah, but they're so, a good way of checking your math. Yeah, exactly. So now that we're talking about all this work involved, um, with, with JS doc annotations, and, and also we were talking about um, uh, Dart the, the other day, where we're getting into uh, more t uh, typed languages. Or, but also you can do that in, with JS doc annotations anyway. Um, 
is it feasible to have automated test uh, scaffolding generation? Can you be more be more specific? Clarify what exactly you're asking. Uh, well, I mean, can I be like really, really lazy and then just like write a, 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 an interpreter that kind of looks at my code and says, "Okay, well, you wanted to put this type of input in here, and you want to get ah. this type of input out, so we're going to, you know, put a lot of data in there that, that kind of should fit that and should." Uh, well. So, I've seen that in one place, and the people who thought that was a good idea was Microsoft. So, does that <laughs> tell you anything? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I, I see. I see two things here. One is uh, basically where, um, how, how do I say this? If you're if you're generating your test based on the code, and so basically what it, what you do is you automate it so that it looks at the code and says this is what it's supposed to do. Now feed values in and get values out. That that inherently it kind of circumvents the whole point of testing because, you know, you should be telling it this is what I want you to take in and this these are the effects that I want you to have you know be it you give back this result or you change the state in these areas or what have you um, you know that's the whole point so so that kind of automated test generation just doesn't really ring right to me um, at the same time I was talking to um, oh who was it yesterday on Ruby Rogues we had Dan Cub on and he uh, he mentioned uh, mutant or mutation testing where basically it you know it will throw uh, bad values in or you know change change the the logic so that you know it should um, take different code paths and and you know behave oddly and see if it can make it behave that way and or behave you know in ways that it shouldn't um, using a tool called Heckle which is a Ruby tool um, and I don't know if there's an equivalent in in JavaScript but you know that kind of testing I think really does firm up your code because in that case it should either um, exit gracefully if it's not getting what it expects to get or it should you know throw errors or exceptions where you would expect them to or you know if you pass a valid value then it should give you a valid result even if it's not you know within the range of values you expected and um, you know and so you can define some of that um, to, to kind of firm your code up but you know it's it's a pretty involved process from what I understand so Sounds so, like it. So you guys were talking about like type checking and stuff. There's a program called Typed.js. It was on Hacker News about a month ago. That if you do type annotations on your functions, it'll generate tests on that. Um, so I mean, it has all the drawbacks and upsides of what you've talked about already. But you can do it in JavaScript with this program that somebody wrote. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, so it's huh. pretty cool. Yeah. So one framework that I keep hearing about is Mocha. What what is Mocha? Because I haven't I haven't really had a chance to use it. I've heard of Jasmine and QUnit. Is it kind of the same thing? Well, so of the popular frameworks, what's really cool about Mocha is it looks it basically seems like they wrote that for Node first, and uh, man, they added a lot of really cool features to Mocha. It does work in the browser, but it works basically natively in Node, where none of the other frameworks uh, do. They all have you have to put some modules on them. Uh, adapters to get them to work in Node, where Mocha works right in Node. Uh, Mocha has some other really cool features. In the end, it's really just another um, test framework. But um, so if you're gonna unit, um, if you're gonna unit test your code, then whether you choose Mocha or Jasmine or something else, you can still get the job done. It's all the little extras that make a big difference. So for Mocha, one of the cool things is it'll do either BDD or TDD style of testing. Oh, which nice. is very nice. Very, yeah, very flexible depending on what your preference is. Uh, it does have a really cool feature where you can uh, have it color code the tests on to, as to whether or not they were fast, uh, kind of medium, or slow, and help you clue in on places where your code might, your performance might be lacking. Mm -hmm. 
And then it also has a lot of really cool uh, output. They call them reporters, uh, so that you can gather the results of the tests and display them in different ways. And some of them are just displays in Bash, uh, but they also have like a, a JSON output. Uh, they have the test anything protocol uh, reporter, and then of course a, a web browser. But the web browser one is by far the most lacking. So if you're going to do browser testing, Mocha, if it's going to be your first choice, you might want to play around with the output yourself and add in your own CSS or something. Um, Mocha does have the landing strip test reporter, which is yeah. my favorite. It's got the little Unicode plane yep. that flies down the landing strip to your test room. And the yeah, other thing is, that's cool. Mocha, um, <laughs> I, I've used Jasmine and I've used Mocha, and for async stuff, I much prefer Mocha because I, I really had a hard time getting Jasmine to test my async code. Maybe that's just because I'm dumb. But Mocha makes it really easy um, to, to let the test know when the async stuff has finished and it should actually start. Uh, validating responses. And that was yeah, kind of a pain to work with in Jasmine. I've never used Mocha, but it does really seem like they looked at the existing frameworks that were out there and really are trying to take the next, you know, revision on testing frameworks. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a good one. All right. So, um I'm also curious. Uh, I know that uh I know that Joe, you're pretty partial to QUnit. What what is it that you like about QUnit over some of the other um testing frameworks? Well, um I wouldn't say that I prefer QUnit over other frameworks, but it did have a lot of value for what the implementation that we were doing. One of them was uh, it's somewhat, for browser uh, testing, it's relatively similar to an XUnit uh, framework, but the only one out there that's really close to a typical XUnit uh, framework is YUI, but YUI has a ton more ceremony in the tests, so uh, that's why I wasn't really keen on using YUI. So uh, QUnit actually just feels a little bit more like the other testing frameworks I'd used on the server side. That's basically the biggest reason why I chose that one over Jasmine. Also, it had, uh, at the time, when I was looking around, it had a little bit easier integration with TeamCity. Um, but Jasmine does integrate with TeamCity as well. It just seemed like uh, QUnit had a few less steps. That was really the, the, the big differences uh, for me. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't choose QUnit because it was vastly superior by any means. In fact, it has a lot of things that are lacking. Um, you know, it has its fair share of weaknesses, just like all the other frameworks do. Right. So, is TeamCity does does that include include CI? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Continuous integration. I yeah. should clarify for the non-initiated. Right. Yeah. For our for the continuous integration server we were using, uh, which was TeamCity, uh, QUnit seemed to be the easiest one, the one that was most recommended. That slips right into TeamCity very very simply and very straightforward. Although. It looks like JS Test Driver actually uh, is even easier. So I'm intent on switching over and starting to use JS Test Driver on top of QUnit. What is JS Test Driver? So JS Test Driver is like Mocha. It's actually really cool. They it is a testing framework just like QUnit, but their goal or kind of what they admit to is they haven't really innovated on the test um, side. What they're what they're integrating on the test they haven't integrated on the t unit testing side. They're, they're innovating on the test running side. So actually getting your tests to run, that's where they've spent the majority of their effort. And so what they have is the ability, they have a couple of things that you can't do pretty much anywhere else. The biggest one is you can run a JS test driver server mm -hmm. and set up slaves for each of the browsers. And then when you um, check in your or save your tests and tell it to run, JS test driver will run your tests in all three browsers. So All three being IE, Mozilla, and... Chrome, right. Safari. It's actually, Lynx, Opera, and uh, Chrome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Can, can we talk a little bit about a workflow for running your tests in the browser? Because I've done a lot of um, server-side JavaScript testing, and, and that's fine. You just run your, your Mocha or Vaz or whatever command to run all your tests. But yeah, how, what is a good way to get it to run your tests and report them back automatically? Or do you have to like click on, like actually open a browser and go to a web page and then inspect the output? Yeah, it's, it's the latter. You know, if, if you're actually in the middle of uh, test driving your code, uh, writing your unit tests, then yeah, you got a browser open and you're just gonna go back to the browser and keep refreshing it. Um, but that's, it, that's not, in the end, it's not too much different from a server-side test framework where once you write the, the test, you'll either click somewhere in the test and tell it to run or go to your test running page and tell it to rerun the test. So there's that one extra step. It's the same thing with uh, your, your unit testing frameworks and the browser-based ones. Okay. Um, I'm a little bit of a command line junkie. So what I'm wondering is, is there any way to run DOM-based tests on the command line without having a browser open to refresh there or whatever? Is. And it is called PhantomJS. Um, PhantomJS is a headless implementation of WebKit, so it, it it's WebKit but without like the browser window. So you can you can um, like load web pages in it um, and, and then test them and then get output back, but without actually opening up like a an, a browser. It'll just start it in the background and then kill it when it's done, kind of thing. Right, and that's how most uh, continuous integration solutions for JavaScript work as well as they use PhantomJS. So then if it's loading the whole browser engine into, or it's loading it up anyway, whether that be in memory or whatever, um, is that generally slower than just loading it in a browser or slower than running unit tests where you aren't interacting with the DOM? Well, since it's running, since generally you do that on the uh, CI server, um, I don't know. I've never compared it to uh, locally. Cool. That's a good question. Yeah. All right. Well, one other thing that I wanted to jump in on, and I know we're moving through these topics kind of quickly, but I kind of want to get a solid overview. And then, you know, maybe we can bring Joe back or, you know, somebody who's working on some of these frameworks to kind of give us the rundown on some of the more specific things. Um, what about mocking? I, I've seen sign on and I think I've seen another library or two, but I don't remember what they are. So Jasmine has uh, its own mocking, but a lot of people use sign on. It seems to be the most popular um, framework out there. There are several mocking frameworks, dozens really, uh, but Sign-On seems to be the most popular one that most people are using. That doesn't mean it's superior in any way. It just means that that's the one that most people have been using perhaps by default. And so what's great, of course, about JavaScript compared to a strongly typed uh, compiled a language or static language is that it's a lot easier to mock things than it is in other languages. So sign on just you just feed sign on an object and it goes through and takes every member of that JavaScript object and replaces it with its own function a new function that it can intercept and watch the call. And then if you if you ask it to it'll still delegate the call onto the actual implementation that you wrote mm -hmm. of the object. So rather than having to create a new object by hand, you actually can take an existing object and then um, utilize that and watch it. Or it and it also of course with JavaScript we uh, tend to use a lot of just plain functions all by themselves. So it'll also spy on functions. Those they're called spies. It's kind of a new new thing um, that the server-side frameworks don't have because most server-side languages don't uh, allow you to have functions that exist outside of a, a, an object. Right. So can you explain the difference between a mock and a stub? Yeah. So in the world of everybody calls all these kinds of things mocks, but uh, I think it was Martin Fowler who uh, took the time to try to come with strict definitions. He, he indicated that there's 
everything is there's this broad category called test doubles and then beneath that there's all these different things and um, the two that most people are used to using with a framework are mocks and stubs and in reality most people just use mocks and very few people use stubs which is uh, in my opinion the exact opposite of what it should be people should start with using stubs and then only use mocks when absolutely necessary uh, the big difference between a mock and a stub is not a, a technical difference, even though in most frameworks, especially the server-side ones, they actually have uh, a big implementation difference. The, the real difference between a mock and a stub is a mock is something that the behavior of the object and the interaction with that object that you're mocking is part of what qualifies to make that test successful or not, whereas a stub is only used to guide the flow of the test. So think of it uh, in this way if you're writing a little component, a little object in JavaScript that's going to make an AJAX call. And you want that AJAX call to either be made if the parameter, if you pass in another object and that object is valid, you want to check it for validity first and then make the AJAX call to say save that object to the server or not make an AJAX call and return a, uh, a value indicating that the object wasn't um, valid then you have two code paths and you'd use a stub to um, make a specific test take one code path or another. So if you do want the object to be valid, you'd use a stub to say, hey, yeah, when you ask this object if it's valid, return true. But you don't care that um, it asks the object that whether or not it was valid for that point in that test. All you care that is that if the object was valid, don't make, then do make the AJAX call, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what a stub's for. Whereas a mock, would be if you are mocking the AJAX call, which you would want to do in a unit test. You don't want to make AJAX calls because you don't want to be running, having to run um, your entire uh, framework in order to run your, your unit tests. So right. if you're going to mock the AJAX call, then uh, the test only passes if you actually do tell the AJAX uh, component, hey, yeah, go ahead and call the server and, and take this object that I'm giving you and save it up. Well, the test is only successful if it's given the right object and it actually makes the call. So that's what a mock is for, is a mock says, yes, you did make the call, and here's the parameters that were passed, and the parameters that were passed were what you were expecting. That's how you check the validity and make sure that, that test passes. So that's the purpose of a mock, where a stub is simply to control flow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that makes that makes sense. I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but uh, I think that clarified some of it up. Um, so one other thing that that we seem to be talking about or talking our way around is is BDD versus TDD. Um, do, does that color your perception of of how you write your tests at all? You know, it it really can, but it also depends on our as a as an organization. Are you actually doing BDD? Um, Jameson, you sounded like you had said it before that you guys had done some BDD or you preferred BDD. Is that right? Um, I don't think I said that. I, use... I don't know. I think I, I know AJ says that uh, he he thinks the difference between TDD and BDD is you put in the word should. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh... sad truth is from the from the framework, the unit testing level, that's really most of the difference. If you look at the difference between say Jasmine and QUnit. Other than um, the fact that Jasmine recommends, you know, they have this format of putting the word should in and, uh, in your test names, they really function the same. By the way, so. don't use the word should. It either does or it doesn't, okay? You should not <laughs> use the word should. No, seriously, this is a pet peeve of mine because uh, our spec in Ruby does the same thing. It's, you know, it. And then the next word in the description is always should. And I'm just like, should? No, it does. And if it doesn't, then it fails. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I got off on a different tangent, but yeah, I, I generally agree with with that premise on unit tests. 
Yeah, um, I'm, I don't dis totally disagree with you. I find the should uh, syntax to be a little off. I, I kind of prefer naming my tests with a given when then syntax, which actually, again, c does come from BDD. Yes. But BD BDD is much bigger than just the unit testing. It's It really describes more, uh, in addition to the unit testing, it also describes how you interact with your business analysts and encourages non-programmers to be able to write some of the tests, not the unit level tests, but higher level like integration level tests. And Man. that's where Q Cucumber comes in. I was just going to say, I really hate the word business analyst. It sounds so dry and boring. It's just like <laughs> doesn't it? non, so like yeah, non-developer but... basically. Like, I don't know if anyone says that they're a business analyst. Maybe I'm offending all the business, like there's a convention for business analysts and they're all going to come to my house and beat me up. But... So, right. so two seconds on that real quick. If you don't have someone from the business side coming and telling you what, you know, what the business requirements are, you're the business analyst. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, one way or the other, you know, either somebody else is making decisions on the on the highest level of the application, defining behavior and functionality through the app, or you're doing it. And so, you know, if you don't have a business analyst, you are a business analyst and you need to be thinking that way. And so anyway. it, it kind of sounds like for BDD, you're looking at the, the app as a user would look at it, where with TDD, you're kind of looking at it as you develop it. So you're Almost. saying for TDD, I need to make this function that call, that returns these parameters and you write your test that tests that. And with BDD, you say, like, I need to be able to click and drag stuff around, like as a user, not not like what functions or things you're going to call. Is that accurate? Um, Kind of. Um, so yeah. my, my take on BDD is that the, the mantra that I keep hearing whenever people talk about BDD and when I do BDD is outside in. And so you, you start at the outermost layer and uh, you work your way in. And so basically you start at the, the functionality or feature level. You, you break that down into behaviors. Um, those behaviors guide your, your UI and integration tests. But in order to get your UI and integration tests to pass, in other words, to validate, um, so you, basically you're writing acceptance tests as UI or integration or even unit tests. And um, anyway, so you work your way down from, from the outermost level to the innermost level. So you're saying, um, I have this behavior that I want in the application. So that means that, um, you know, I need this API. So then you write the integration test for that API. And within that integration test, well, you're calling these objects and these objects need to behave in this way. So then you're writing the unit tests. And so if you're doing strict BDD, um, you know where you're where you're using TDD as part of the process, then you're you're yeah you're just approaching it from a little bit different angle. Whereas TDD, all that really means is I'm writing the the test um, uh, sort of as acceptance test for my code, except that you're writing the the test to drive your code. Uh, so it I, sounds like BDD is a superset of TDD. Then in you my do mind, it TDD is TDD to do BDD. In my mind, it is, but some people think of it differently and see them as kind of opposing points of view. I don't see it that way. Yeah, I agree with with that. I don't think they're by any means opposing points of view. Uh, in that, in the great article uh, that Martin Fowler wrote, uh, "Mocks uh, Aren't Stubs," he talks about the different kinds of TDDers or TDDists, I guess is what he calls them. And it's uh, There you go. <laughs> and uh, he talks about the fact that a lot of them approach approach a program from the outside in, from the UI level down. The, and that's called the mockists tend to do that a little bit more often than the classicists. Those are the two divisions. If yeah. you get bored, go read that article. It's a fantastic article. So, but you can be a TDDer and doing 
like what you're saying, uh, Chuck, that with BDD, you start from the outside in and, and really not be doing BDD because you're just doing TDD from the outside in. Right. Because BDD has more. It, uh, I, but I agree with you. I think it's a superset of TDD. And I think it'd be hard to do BDD without following the practices of TDD that mostly exist, which are write your test, uh, make it fa uh, write a failing test, make it pass, refactor, and continue. Right. Well, and, and that's where your given when thens come in, because then you have acceptance tests that your business people, business analysts, whoever can can look at and say, yes, that's what I want. Right. And the Wikipedia article on BDD um, is really quite good and talks about these sorts of things. And the reason why the inventor of BDD invented it when he was doing TDD is he just kind of felt like it wasn't enough. And there was that same cycle needed to be happening on bigger levels than just the unit level. Yep. So can I ask a question about something to, to circle back to mocking a little bit? I um, when you say that you, so you want to make an Ajax request, so you'll mock the jQuery Ajax request, that's kind of relying on the, the idea that you have this global jQuery object that's just manually there, right? And, and so inside your test, you'll define a dollar sign object, and then in the dollar sign, you'll put like dollar sign dot Ajax, and that'll be your, your stub or your mock. Is that what you were talking about earlier? Um, to be honest, to do it really right, to really do a good uh, purest uh, TDD form of doing that. There's one of the um, somewhat lesser known rules of TDD is to not mock objects that you don't own and okay. to abstract away any third-party libraries. So that would include jQuery. You would, so you're saying you would pass in jQuery to this object? Uh, to even or, a little or further, pass in some kind of some kind of object that can make requests. Exactly. You'd pass in a wrapper around the jQuery Ajax. Um, that's a little. That's a more pure form of TDD. Because that just makes that that feels like a really weird API to actually to use that function that you're always passing around jQuery. I, I mean, well, I wouldn't recommend passing around jQuery for all the things that jQuery does, but for when it comes to talking to the outside world, ma namely Ajax, yeah, then wrapping the Ajax call because. For one thing, jQuery isn't the only show in town when it comes to making Ajax calls. And if at any yeah. point you do want to change, then then it's nice you've got this wrapper around it. Well, the the other the oh. other thing is is usually you're not just going to be creating it just just to have it there for your tests. I mean, what you're probably going to do is you're probably going to create this abstraction and you're going to make it so that it simplifies all the rest of your code. Exactly. And and that's kind of one of the the bonuses that you get out of a pure TDD approach, if you want to call it that is that um, basically, you know, it, it's not just about writing the tests first. It's about literally driving the design of your code based on what you're testing. And so if you put these levels of abstraction in there, then then you wind up with cleaner code. That's that's absolutely true. That's a great summary of TDD, So the purpose of it. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're not driving the, the, the structure of your code, then you're not doing TDD. Right. So, Joe, are there any other good resources that people can uh, look up or follow for um, for learning more about testing their JavaScript? Well, so, of course, there's my website, testdrivenjs.com. Um, that's getting more and more content all the time. And we also are looking for people that want to contribute uh, to that as well or repost articles. Uh, in addition to that, um, there are a few um, other really good resources that are out there. Most of them are relatively specific or general to TDD by itself. When it comes to merging TDD and JavaScript, there's um, a surprising lack of stuff out there. But you can find articles on test driving um, your backbone models and your backbone views. Um, you can find articles on um, 
test driving different kinds of JavaScript, but they're few and far between. There's no really, really great place. On uh, testdrivenjs.com, we do have a resources page that lists, links out to some general TDD stuff, plus uh, the one book out there uh, on test-driven JavaScript development as well. So that's that's kind of it. There's It's What's a Google the search. Called? It's called de- test-driven JavaScript development. Oh, seems obvious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now that you say it. Well, cool. Well, um, I think we're just about out of time, so uh, we'll go ahead and jump in on the picks, uh, unless there's something else that you want to add or that Jameson wants to ask before we go. Nope, that's just the, it's like the thing you say before people get married, speak now or forever, hold your peace. Well, until next week. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to throw in my, uh, again, my one more plug that um, if you are doing JavaScript and you're not test driving your JavaScript, then you're missing out on better code. Yep, that that's generally true of any code. If you're not test driving it, you're you're missing out on on some just awesome benefits. Exactly. We that's... didn't even talk about regressions and stuff. I mean, you can there. It's it's so much easier to change stuff if you know that you have the safety net of tests. Right. And just yep. break some random chunk of it. Yeah. By far the largest uh, article on that test driven JS site is all about the benefits of TDD, and it kind of enumerates those various different things, uh, refactoring and actually adding maintenance, those sorts of things and the benefits and kind of digs into why it's much better to do it with TDD than even just doing after the fact unit testing. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Uh, Jameson, what are your picks? My first pick is having my mic unmuted. I think this is the first week that's happened for the picks for me. (laughs) Um, My next one is Goodreads. It's a social website for tracking your the books that you have read and want to read. Um, I just think it's cool to uh, have them all in one place because I don't really ever think about all the books that I've read or ones that I, that I want to read. I kind of used my Amazon wish list, but that doesn't really keep track of stuff I've already read. Um, so you can add books that you've read. You can rate them. Um, it has a recommendation engine like everything these days it seems like, and it's pretty good. Um, so that's goodreads.com. My next one is a, an ebook called bootstrapping design. And this book is for me. Um, it's for people that aren't really designers that still want things to look pretty, but don't want to pay hundreds of bucks an hour for a really good designer. So it, it's, it's really to the, the developer who knows what good design is when he sees it, but can't really come up with it himself. Um, it's, it's pretty short. I think it's 130 pages, and it's 40 bucks right now. It was just launched a couple of days ago. Um, it, it's a great resource. It's got sections on typography, on color, and, it, and it's really actionable. It's not really abstract with design principles, which I can't really, I don't know. I'm not enough a designer to just read about like spacing and then apply it to a website that I'm working on. So that's been really helpful for me to improve my design skills. Um, and then my last pick is a band called Apparat. They're really chill electronic music. I listen to them while I'm coding. How do you spell that? A-P-P-A-R-A-T. Um, it's it's not really techno. It's kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just it's just chill electronic music. It has some vocals sometimes, but it's stuff that I can listen to that's relaxing, that doesn't demand my attention. So it's great for uh, writing code, too. Those are my picks. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I'll go ahead and put some picks in here. One, the first one is um, I've gotten hooked on a program called Things. I think I picked this on all three podcasts this week. Oh, I love Things. I have that. I use it a lot, too. It's great. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a to-do list, except it actually has all the features I want. <laughs> 
Um, I was using Wonderlist before, and uh, the, the real problem I had with Wonderlist was that there are things that I want to make sure I do every day, and um, I, I need them in my checklist <laughs> so that I can see them and say, um, yeah, you need to, you know, read a business book this morning or, you know, whatever. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just real nice to be able to have that kind of recurring thing. But the other thing is, is it has projects and areas of responsibility in it. So um, I can assign things to projects. Um, I can stick things in like, you know, do this with the kids, do this with the wife, you know, whatever for family, um, you know, take out, take out the trash, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and, and it's just, it's in there when I need it to be in there. And so it's really nice. It actually will sync over wireless with my, uh, iPad. And so that's also nice. Um, apparently they've been promising cloud sync for a long time and haven't put it in. And so things cloud sync is called put it in your Dropbox. Yes. Yes. That's actually what I did. Um, but it would, if you put it in your Dropbox, then it won't cloud sync with your iPad. Like if I'm, if I go somewhere else, then I have to have it sync over Dropbox to my laptop and then do the wireless sync. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not, not seamless. Real cloud sync, but yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, so that's one. Um, it was funny cause we had like a 20 minute discussion after, um, Ruby freelancers this morning. And we, we talked about books for, I swear, like 20, 25 minutes before we ended the podcast during picks. And uh, so I was going to pick Goodreads, but um, I'm sure I can come up with something else here. Have I done the rundown on my podcast setup? I think I have on this show. Um, I, my other pick really is, the, I'll pick the iPad. Um, I don't have the new one. I really want the new one. Um, yeah, generous listener. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just love it. I, I usually just use it for media consumption and, and not even for like books cause I have a Kindle and I think the Kindle is far superior for reading on, but, uh, it's really nice for when I just need to watch a show or if I need to just kick back and play angry birds or something, it's, it's got that huge screen on it. It's just really nice. And the other thing is, is I can actually prop it up next to my computer. And so if I don't want to pull up things on my computer, I can actually just turn it on. And that's usually what I have running underneath. So then I can start checking stuff off. So um, it's it's just handy that way. Um, but anyway, so th- those are my picks. Um, Joe, did we warn you about picks? Yeah, yep. Okay. So uh, my first pick is a board game called Last Will. Last Will. Yeah, it's really fun. The, the point of the board game is you're a super rich old guy that's getting close to dying and you want to spend all your money before you die so you don't leave it to any of your kids. <laughs> oh, like like my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you're trying to get rid of all your money and whoever does the best job of getting rid of their money by the end of the game wins the game. And it's just really fun. It's kind of set in sort of a 1920s ish type setting. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really fun. So that's my first pick. My second pick is the TV show Psych, uh, which is about a guy who's really, really smart uh, and he pretends to be a psychic detective. Uh, and he's a it's a hilarious show. Tons and tons and tons of 80s references. Uh-huh. So love that show. And then uh, my third pick is a book. It's uh, by Glenn Cook. It's called The Tower of Fear, and it's not one you can find on Kindle. It's uh, it's an old, rather old book, but, you know, 80s, so, so super ancient, really. But uh, <laughs> possibly, in my opinion, the best best book, uh, best sci-fi, fantasy book ever written. I, I love how you talk about the 80s and say ancient. I think one of us was born in the 80s. <laughs> really? Yeah, Jameson, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. The, the, the other two of us are old men. Yep. So... It's All funny because right. on Ruby Rogues, Chuck, you're like the young man. I but, am. You know, when, when we started, I wasn't the youngest, but Peter bowed out, and yeah, now I am. Let me throw in a, one more pick just really quick. There's a, the TV show Touch with Kiefer Sutherland. It starts up tonight. 
I saw the preview for it. It was really cool. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, they had that first. How long was it? Was it just an hour? Yeah. Yeah, it looked good. I'm I'm really really picky about my TV, and it wasn't it wasn't compelling enough for me to give up an hour a week for. So what I'll probably wind up doing is wait until they release it to Netflix or DVD, and then I'll just watch them all. Well, you definitely need to check out Psych. Uh, I I might have to. My sister was watching it the other day, but I I didn't get into it anyway. But but yeah, it could have just been that one episode was an off episode because it seems like every show has those. So we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, it's it's super awesome to see that testing's kind of getting, uh, getting some attention in the JavaScript world because... I think it's one area that a lot of people make excuses not to use it in, and I think I think there's some real need for it to you know ramp up and people to get serious about it. Absolutely. And and I think it's a real sign of serious development going on in JavaScript. So that's exciting. All right. Yeah. So um, we are in iTunes. We used to, like I said before, we were in New and Noteworthy. I don't know if that was in the pre-show or not, but we were in New and Noteworthy. So I just want to thank everybody who has been subscribing and leaving reviews and stuff because because we really really appreciate it it does help us move up um it'd be kind of fun to see this show overtake ruby rogues um but uh we'll see how that goes anyway so if you go into itunes you can leave us a review or just a rating either way um tell your friends so they can subscribe if you are on a device that is not an itunes device uh namely like an android phone or something uh, you can go to the website and just uh, use the rss button or link and uh, subscribe there and uh, that should actually um, get you into you know then you can get it automatically on your on your phone or whatever Um, other than that um, I'm thinking about starting a book club on this show kind of like we do on Ruby Rogues Um, so if you have any book suggestions for books that you want us to cover and talk about then uh, go ahead and put them into the request a topic on the website you can can either click the feedback uh, tab that's floating around on the page somewhere or you can click on request a topic and then just type in book club and then the name of the book. And uh, yeah, within the next few weeks, we will probably give that a try and just pick one of the books that people are suggesting. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week.